0: When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. Indeed, you should have been the ones commending me, for I am not at all inferior to these super apostles even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, signs and wonders and mighty works. How have you been worse off than the other churches except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here I am ready to come to you this third time and I will not be a burden because I do not want what is yours but you. For children ought not to lay up for their parents, but parents for their children. I'll most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Let it be assumed that I did not burden you. Nevertheless, you say, since I was crafty, I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves with the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves before you? We are speaking in Christ before God. Everything we do, beloved, is for the sake of building you up. For I fear that when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. I fear that there may perhaps be quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God, may humble me before you, and that I may have to mourn over many who previously sinned and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and licentiousness that they have practiced. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I joined my first Episcopal church, the one that I attended regularly outside the gate of Fort Hood, Fort Cavazos, Texas, Back in 2000, I um, I was so relieved to be in a church without any problems. It was just wonderful to just go to church and just go to a church that was not having any problems. Uh, there were no troubles there, like the church I'd worked in as a youth minister that had propelled me into the army chaplaincy. Um, i 'm not saying it was the church that drove me to that, but um i 'll tell you what after watching the demise of my senior pastor as I was the youth minister, I shared an office with uh with the copier machine and the mailboxes. That was my youth minister office there. I think I was about twenty five at the time, and uh the senior pastor was in a locked in a fight with the um, one of, the, one of the elders, and a number of the elders. It was a Mennonite Brethren Church, so they had a senior pastor, an associate pastor, and me, and a, an elder board, who uh, elders are a little bit different in the Presbyterian system than they are in, in the Episcopal system, for sure. But um, all the same kind of dynamics that play out in churches were at play in that system. Um, you know, I look back on that church, I think how big it was. I didn't realize that at the time it seemed like a small church. I grew up in a mega church where my dad was the pastor, and um, I uh, sort of thought all churches were kind of that size. And um, then I went to a small church, this Mennonite Brethren Church, Bible Fellowship was the title, and I thought that was really small. And now, after years and years and years in the Episcopal Church, um, That was actually a really big church. (laughs) It's weird how we get, uh, you know, sort of reference our past for sure. Uh, Experience kind of opens some of that up to reality. Um, But in this church with three on the pastoral staff, um, I was not fully ordained at the time. I was licensed uh, to ministry. but So I was like the youth minister. I was only part-time. And the senior pastor would come into my office, the copier room, of course, where all the mailboxes were, and he would uh, unload on me and tell me all about the the elder that he hated that was out to get him and he was mad at and all the things he was up to and mad at him for. And um, and then, like a couple hours later, the elder would call me, the one he was talking about, and take me out to lunch. And he would tell me all about the senior pastor and I was 25 or 26 at the time. I didn't really understand what was going on. I just knew that I was a, I was a sponge of their um, anger towards each other. And I was in the middle of it, <clears throat> never really taking a side other than the side of empathy in the moment. Um, and, you know, you can build a whole career on that sort of uh, middleman work um, <laughs> where you just kind of listen to both sides and don't do anything and that was the nice thing about being that young no one expected me to but they kind of wanted me on their side and and i realized after the senior pastor finally left in a huff and then of course since i was part-time they um i needed a place to live with my newborn child and, and spouse and uh so i moved into the parsonage or the rectory as we call it the episcopal church the house the church owned right around the corner, and that was a way to sort of, you know, keep me there um, on a part-time salary with uh, as the sole wage earner in the family, um, since my wife had just had a child, and, um, and I moved into this parsonage, and a couple weeks after moving in, the senior pastor came back to the parsonage to dig up some plants that he had planted there. He wanted to get his plants out of the, rec- the parsonage garden. Um, it was a wild time, and, I, and and so I went to my first Episcopal church um, after joining the army, stationed at Fort Cavazos, and joined and you know started attending and being part of it, and I was just so relieved that it was a church without any problems. There were no leadership problems. There was no tension in the church. I just went to church on Sunday. I took communion. I went home. I came back for the prayer service on Wednesday. I did the rosary, I did the, you know, the men's breakfast or whatever. (laughs) I had a great time. It was a church with no problems. Years later, I found out that while I was attending that church, um, they were locked in a bitter, bitter, bitter struggle. This was the year 2004 and 2005. They were deciding as a parish whether they were going to leave the Episcopal Church or not whether they were going to affiliate with a, the, the, what became the Anglican Church in North America, ACNA, the church that is in support of laws that criminalize uh, homosexual behavior and homosexuals in Uganda. Like they were debating whether to join that group at the time. I was there, and they were having meetings about that, and I had no idea. I had no idea what was going on. I had joined a church with no problems. And maybe I even said that to the priest. I can't remember if I did or not. But um, I'm sure he chuckled to himself and nodded his head. Oh, great. You're here at the church with no problems. And I, I hear that as a church planner occasionally from some of our new folks. It is so good to be at a church with no problems. My last church had so many troubles and arguments and conflicts. And, and I always kind of chuckle because I say, like, you know, have, when we read the Bible especially 2 Corinthians, we kind of learn that, that this is normal. A church with a little bit of struggle, internally, is actually the norm. The early church that we idolize and sort of hold up as sort of the pure example of the the true church of Jesus Christ that later got corrupted under Constantine, and then in the medieval world became corrupted by the Catholics who bought and sold salvation, and then later became bogged down by bureaucracy and stone buildings and the need to you know do all these big things in the world or in civil religion with church and state issues all these all these bad things that came later in the church this early church did not have all they had was the fire of the holy spirit burning through them they had the apostles right there peter james john paul mary they had mary like the mother of jesus right there Not far away. They could, like, write letters to her and stuff. Um, And it is this church, this church, that has these kinds of problems. The ones he says. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I mean, this is stuff that's happening in the Corinthian church, and this is not exceptional. This is the norm. Paul makes that clear in this letter, that this is the concern he has for all the churches that he has started, that he connects with. They're all like this. They all struggle with these very same things. They struggle with quarreling. I think quarreling is best seen as siblings that that bicker with each other. And my kids have never done any of this. I just want you to know that. This is, I've observed this in other people's children. But, um, you know, like they're sitting there at the table together, and one of them says, "Stop! Bre- He's breathing at me. He's breathing at me. Tell him to stop breathing at me. Okay, stop breathing, okay? Just stop breathing at him for a little bit. Um, you know, quarreling. They're arguments over stupid stuff. Arguments just for the sake of argument, because of our internal dysregulation and anger and moodiness or whatever it is that is crushing us and hurting us from the outside world, and we kind of take it out on the people closest to us. That to me is quarreling. Jealousy. Um, We are not all the same. We don't all have the same stuff, and we don't have all the same opportunities, and it's really easy um, to be jealous of other people's success and privileges and benefits and, um, opportunities and, you know, all sorts of things that other people have that we don't have. Um, jealousy is a poison. It gets inside us and we resent people's happiness and successes. Um, scripture teaches us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, but that's really hard to do when someone that we don't think deserves gets something, um, that we have not gotten that we feel that we deserve. And of course, it's petty, but these are our lives. Jealousy is a normal thing for humans. There is a kind of healthy jealousy that Paul talks about, and we've read about in the Old Testament prophets, that love is slightly jealous. You know, it doesn't want to be betrayed. It doesn't want um, someone to, or some group to disown us. We want to be loved and cared for. But jealousy can also become a poison. And uh, we've all been there at some point or another in churches. The closer we are emotionally as a church, the more connected we are, the more time we spend with each other, the more stuff we do and accomplish, the more of this kind of stuff that's going to happen. All of these problems in the Corinthian church are a mark of their connectedness. They are not a sign that the church is bad or evil or broken. It is a sign that they're close. Because families have these kind of troubles too, and workplaces and army units and other groups of people that are well-connected and emotionally connected and relying on each other have these same kind of problems. Anger. I think this one um, has to do with destructive behavior towards others. Um, Anger. Um, Can we be a church that helps each other regulate our feelings and emotions? when they spike. Um, That's hard to do. We want to give people space to vent and share their feelings. Um, At the same time, anger can be really destructive, the kind of things that we say in anger. Um, You ever notice how eloquent we become when we're angry? You know? um, I don't know about you, but some of my best speeches have been when I'm really angry. Because there's a a, a drive to win and succeed and and destroy the other person's argument. And anger is a poison too. Um, Even though it can produce righteousness and that we're angry about injustice and things like that. Anger towards the frustrations of daily life um, can be really destructive for relationships, for community. Selfishness. you know and we're all a little selfish we were born selfish in the sense that we have a self interest called self-preservation we want to eat we want to survive we want to grow Um, we want all these things and we we never stop with that humans are always a little selfish because we're the only people that experience our lives we experience our own life and nobody else's we can try to be empathetic and get inside someone else's head and mind and heart but ultimately we're alone in that sense that we have to think about ourselves. And selfishness, though, is that step beyond that, um, that goes beyond just the basic, you know, how do I fit into this community? But selfishness is really, there's a limited amount of resources, and I need as much as possible. And that can be a lot of things. Um, In the church, this is seen by, I want this kind of church because I need this, Um, with a lot of disregard for what other people need from a church. I certainly have needs in church. I need this in a church i and it comes with styles of worship and other things. Um, and yet, um, the church is not just about my personal uh needs and wants and and things I like. Um, the church is about what's the best for the community. and I get that wrong sometimes. sometimes it's just stuff I like. Um, other times it's um you know ideas that other people have that I like and do or we do together. But ultimately, this kind of selfishness is when we only think about what the churches can give us. And uh, that is always going to lead us down a path of poison, poisoning our hearts, because it'll never meet just our needs. No organization can do that, um, If it's if it's a group, if it's a community. This is why in most of the purity quests that churches go on, to have the one true church where everybody's on the same page, and everybody agrees, and everybody believes the same thing, and Um, They add on teaching after teaching and rule after rule after rule until only it's you and your family sitting on the couch and they're only doing it because they have to. Ultimately, churches that have a purity quest um, to to have the one true pure church where everybody agrees on everything and everybody is right, whatever that means, will always result in a, a winnowing down of people that are at different stages of development and different places of growth and challenge. Um, Slander and gossip. These are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, Slander is that um, saying something about somebody that just isn't true or maybe has an element of truth to it um, to to cause them to be disregarded and what they say to be discounted. Slander. Um, Gossip. Gossip is that, um, in a good sense, gossip... Uh, help spread information about things that are dangerous that was sort of the point of gossip from human development um, we like to share things that are dangerous for other people whether that's people's behavior or other things and gossip's important in that sense that um, we can only know things there's several parables of jesus where people gossip to the king about someone that did something. I think of the unjust steward, where the guy goes out and chokes the guy, trying to get money from him after he's been forgiven his great debt. Well, the word gets back to the king. The gossip gets back to the king, that what happened in the street with this guy choking the other guy, and the king hears about it and then deals with the the guy who was doing the violence. So this is not just information sharing about safety, Um, and especially when it comes to safeguarding, we need to make it very clear in the church that if if, um, if there are violations of people's trust and abuse and things like that, they need to be spoken, and we need to take them seriously. And, um, and we do have that information on our, webs- on our website and other places to um, contact. For- so this is not about, you know, sending up a warning signal or, or sharing some hurtful thing that happened. This is the kind of um, obsession with other people's business, that um, distracts us from what we need to be doing in our lives. Um, and we live in a world fueled by this, so it's not like we can escape it fully. This is always going to be a struggle in every community, church, life. Conceit. This is that, that idea that, um, that I kind of have it all figured out, that I'm right about everything, and, and nobody else is as right as me. Um, this kind of conceit, can um, can really be poisonous for a community because um, we want to be proud of ourselves and proud of our community and we want to be brave and bold and things like that. But there's a kind of conceit that is an arrogance that um, doesn't listen to anybody else. Um, and Paul is writing not just to the members of the church, whatever that means in the first century, as everyone's a, very much an equal participant in this community. There's no buildings yet. There's no, like, budgets the way we think of finances, probably, in the way that we do. But there is very intense community and fellowship and accountability in this early church. Um, So he's talking to the leaders as much as everybody else in the church. There are elders there. Titus has been there. Other elders and apostles have been there. Um, So he's talking to them as much as he's talking to people that joined the church five months ago. Um, And then disorder. Why does he put this one last? Disorder is sort of the outworking of all this other stuff. Um, Jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Um, Disorder is that chaos that comes from all these other things manifesting in the church. And this is what Paul's primary concern is. In the first century, everything he's doing is trying to preserve this community. If there is disorder in the community the outside Roman world will discredit the church, discount the church, will um, accuse the church of things, persecute the church, take away stuff from the members and even kill some of the members. This has happened over and over again. And the Roman world is always looking for an opportunity to destroy this fledgling church. So disorder is particularly serious for Paul um, when this is happening. In our context, um, we certainly believe that um as Episcopalians and Anglicans, we, have, we have, in, have inherited the prayer book liturgical tradition. Um, one of the ways we keep the order of the church is by um, using the prayer book or the authorized liturgies of the church. We are not just making it up every week. We use what our church authorities and, and governance, which is us, we are sending delegates to general convention. That is the highest authority in the Episcopal church for what we do on Sundays. And that general convention um has authorized certain liturgies that and has not authorized others so we try to use the ones that have been authorized most notably the 1979 prayer book for this day and age that's one way to keep order the other way is to have clear lines of accountability clear authority structures in a church plant just like in the corinthian church this is always going to be a little messy Um, it hasn't been around very long there are lots of things happening there are all kinds of, I'm talking about the Corinthian church, not ours. Um, but this is the nature of a church plant. It is a lot more dynamic, driven by personalities and involvement and levels and circles of involvement. And the more involved the person is, the more an, an influence they're going to have in a church plant. There is no institutional structure that um, often that, that more established churches have. And so um, that can be disorderly too. Um, and that is something that um, even our church plant has to consider every single, every single time and, and day. So this is a message to the leaders of the church and to the people of the church, because this is the kind of stuff that everybody participates in to some degree. And, and then he says, I fear that when I come again to you, my God may humble me before you. I don't know what he meant by that. I think he meant that he's got all these problems, too. He's telling them not to do all this stuff, but like he's done it, too. He's a human being and he's had these same struggles that everyone in this church has had, Um, even though he has not exploited them. He has not been a burden to them. He has not taken stuff from them, um, as he makes it very clear in this reading. Um, as these super apostles have done, these pseudo apostles, these um, people that are saying they're the real apostles and Paul is a fraud and a liar. Um, All these, in spite of all that, he knows that God can humble him too. Um, That's the one thing you learn as a leader real fast is that you make mistakes, big ones, all the time. And you don't always get it right. And you don't always... uh, you know, see what's happening until it's too late, uh, many times. And so the humility of Paul is seen in this verse, that um, ultimately leaders don't have it all figured out all the time, that they are one of the sheep of the fold of God. Um, The under-shepherds are also sheep in the sheepfold. And Paul says that um, this is of concern to him. Again, He is dealing with the order of the church, those who have sinned previously and have not repented of these impurities, the sexual morality, licentiousness that they have practiced. He's talking about the kind of stuff that will discredit them with the Roman world around them. And we as Christians today need to think about that. What are the things that the church does that cause extreme disrepute to fall upon us? I don't think it's so much sexual anymore. Um, although that is always an element, because the sexual abuse of children in the church, um, every church, including ours, the Episcopal Church, um, is a huge discrediting of our work in the world and the way we've handled that abuse. Um, those kinds of sex scandals that Paul's talking about here are the ones that will um, kill the church in certain places and times. And then It'll have to be reborn in a different way. Um, so it is all still in this area of, of involvement. But I also think of the ways that churches have involved themselves in the persecution of LGBTQ people, all in the name of some kind of sexual purity, when in fact um, it is um, simply a cover up for their own avarice and vice and abuse. And so um, this is a very practical letter. And 2 Corinthians always has a way of um, getting to the heart of what it's like in the church. And I'm so glad the Corinthians had problems because um, then we get to see that, that how they dealt with them. Um, and I'm kind of glad that, that our church has problems and that I have problems because we get to see how God will deal with us, how God will heal us, how God will help us. Um, ultimately, that is Paul's point in this, this chapter is that it is through the weakness of God in Christ that we see God most powerful. It is in the, the failures of the church that we see the grace of God come in most strongly. Do we sin so grace abounds? Certainly not. He makes that very clear. But in community, there will be hurts. There will be danger. There will be um, these kinds of things happening. And it is, these are opportunities for God's grace to come in and humble us and say, we need you, God. We need you to solve this because it's kind of beyond what we can do at this point. Amen. So Joseph Butler would have attended the non-Church of England schools and churches, the Presbyterians, um, in the aftermath of the English Civil War. The Presbyterian Church, which eventually became the Baptist Church, was born. Um, Both Presbyterians and Baptists exist today in America and in England to some degree, but this is after the restoration of Charles II, reestablishing the canceled and uh, obliterated Anglican Church with its bishops and Book of Common Prayer. It had been restored, but there were certainly a lot of people on the other side of that debate happening there. Um, This is shortly after the time period that I wrote about on Facebook yesterday where um, Jeremy Taylor, a hero of mine that I've talked about here before, um, writes a letter to a a woman who is asking a question about a lesbian relationship, or relationships that she is having. And um, Jeremy Taylor answers her in a letter. Um, So sort of a crossover with Pride Month. So these are people that are are sort of emerging into the modern era um, when it comes to relationships, human sexuality and other issues, and the Presbyterians are the ones that are um, really angry about how Anglicans explore these topics. Um, And so it is today in the Baptist tradition in America, um, they tend to be suspect of Anglicans, Episcopalians, in our explorations of human flourishing. Still kind of happening. But in his 20s, he became an Anglican as often happens with people that grow up in fundamentalism and other reactionary religious movements. The Anglican Episcopal Church has always held out some hope for a better life. He entered Oxford in 1715 and was ordained in 1718. Joseph Butler distinguished himself as a preacher while serving at Rolls Chapel in Chancery Lane, London, and then went on to serve several parishes before being appointed as Bishop of Bristol in 1738, he declined to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was kind of cool, you know. They asked him, the king asked him, and he said no. But he accepted a post or translation to be the Bishop of Durham in 1750. Um, Durham Cathedral and that center of learning is, is still one of great learning it's where the great N.T. Wright um, New Testament professor and historian was the bishop of and scholarly bishop there. Um, and he, was, he died on June 16, 1752 in Bath, and his body was entombed in Bristol Cathedral. Butler's importance rests chiefly on his acute apology for Orthodox Christianity against the deistic thought prevalent in England in his time and his work. The analogy of religion natural and revealed to the constitution and course of nature in 1736. He maintained the reasonable probability of Christianity with action upon that probability as a basis for faith. Butler's was a rational exposition of the faith grounded in deep personal piety a worthy counterpoint to the enthusiasm of the Wesleyan revival of the same period. There were two movements happening that he confronted. One is deism This is often the view that is credited to our founding fathers who kind of come right after Joseph Butler um, and others who were uh, exponents of this idea that God was the great watchmaker in the sky, that God created a world, wound it up, and let it go. And, um, And so don't really look to God for much in the way of spiritual enlightenment, benefit, talk. Don't even bother talking to God. God's really not there. There is a God somewhere up there, and you should probably pray to him or maybe go to church once in a while. But the real treasures of, of our human life lie in science and learning and things like that. So it was kind of a good movement to get away from some of the superstitions that had kind of grown up over the years, but it was also um, a way to leave the Christian faith, as Butler makes it clear. There was a way to be a Christian and be smart. There was a way to do that. You can do that. Um, You can think thoughts about science and the world and still be a Christian, according to Butler. You can still believe that God interacts with the universe and that God interacts with your life, that God has a say in your life, that God has some kind of connection to you through Jesus Christ. Um, Because that was the problem of deism is that it really negated the work of Jesus, especially his crucifixion and resurrection. It was all too miraculous for them, so they really weren't interested in it. it. Came most notably in the way that they did not take communion. George Washington is famous for not taking communion uh, when he goes to church in the Episcopal Church that he was part of leading as a vestryman in Virginia. He walks out a number of times before communion is served. William White, the founder, really the founder of the mo- of the modern Episcopal Church in America after the Revolutionary War, confronts him. He's the rector of Christ Church Philadelphia, confronts him, you know, you're setting a bad example, you're the president, you're walking out, communion. And George Washington apologized and never came back on communion Sundays to church. Um, it was served month once a month, so you could kind of skip church once in a while and skip communion. So that was standard for the deists of his day. Joseph Butler took them on and offered a way out of that. And also the Wesleyan revivals that were happening, John and Charles Wesley and others, said that you had to have religious experiences to be a true Christian. Deep, profound, life-changing religious experiences. And if you didn't, you probably weren't a real Christian. This is true to some degree. They were right about a lot of things, that there were a lot of Christians who were, quote, just going through the motions and all other things. But this pressure of revivalism, especially on children that the Wesleyan movement brought to England and America and the rest of the world, has been overall pretty destructive in that um, people then sort of quest for these uh, mystical and miraculous experiences rather than focusing on what Jesus actually said to them and to everybody, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Joseph Butler takes them on too to say that you don't have to really have these huge things happen to you at revival meetings to be a Christian. Um, We see this today in the modern Episcopal Church, pressure to to be more experiential, Um, pressure. And if you don't, you you really haven't experienced real Christianity or something like that. We always have to be wary of movements that uh, take us away from Jesus, whether it's deism or experiential revivalism, um, those are always ways to get away from the faith that Jesus offered. Jesus did not have um, revivalistic meetings, and he didn't just sit around and do science all day. He, um, he did what Jesus did. He taught, he healed, and he died. And he rose from the dead. And sticking with that pattern is probably a good one, um, rather than some of these others that are offered. O God, who raised up scholars for your church in every generation, we praise you for the wisdom and insight granted to your bishop and theologian, Joseph Butler, and pray that your church may never be destitute of such gifts through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen.